The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everybody. I'm uh, James Stevenson, and welcome to uh, Opus Energy Insights on Barron's Live. Um, I lead the research team at McCloskey in our uh, coal, metals, and mining practice. Um, today's topic is, is coal. Um, and in 2019, we saw a uh, very high uh, coal trade globally. And since then, between the COVID-19 pandemic and competition from renewables, competition from natural gas, uh, we've seen coal trade fall away. However, it started bouncing back last year. And believe it or not, this year could turn out to be a record for global coal trade. So uh, at the same time, we've had very high prices. We've had coal producers making a lot of money. And anyone who's able to invest in the space uh, has been making very good money lately. This leads to the question, is, is the demise of coal really upon us? This has obviously been talked about considerably. Uh, luckily, I have uh, today, uh, helping me answer this question, uh, two of my colleagues. Uh, I have Serena Patel uh, out of London, who is the co-head of our uh, thermal coal service, our global thermal coal service. Uh, and I have Andy Blumenfeld, who leads our North America coal and natural gas coverage. Uh, welcome, Andy. Welcome, Serena. Thanks for uh, joining us today on Barron's Live. It's good Thank to be you. here. Thank you. Yes, it is. Um, Let's start off with you, Andy. Uh, is coal, you cover North America, is coal really on its way out? Oh, it's a great question. Let me just start off by saying, yes, coal is down this year in the U.S., but not out for sure. Um, last year, we produced in the U.S., call it 595 million short tons of coal. Um, and that is actually up from where we were in 2020, the COVID year, which was about 535. We've actually had two consecutive years of increases in coal production in the U.S. Uh, we think that this year could be, it'll be down, but not that far down. Um, but I think it's important to address this question is actually how coal is used in the United States. About 80% of it goes into the power generation market used to, you know, to produce electric power. Um, about 11% of the coal that gets produced here gets uh, used in the, in the production of steel, both in North America as well as overseas. Uh, the remainder is split between industrial uses, um, things like cement and lime kilns and paper production and corn and sugar processing, um, as well as exporting some coal to use in uh, power generation overseas. Um, about 20% of the electricity that we'll produce this summer will come from coal-based sources. Uh, so it is still a significant and important part of the power generation stack in the US. Um, and in some parts of the country, it's actually much higher than the upper Midwest um, and the Midwest and the South Central, for example, it's, you know, during parts of the summer, it's gonna exceed 40% of the electricity. So, um, you know, where I sit, uh, in the central part of the United States, it's going to be difficult to uh, um, produce electricity without coal. Um, so the primary attribute for coal 
as well as natural gas, is that it is it produces dispatchable electric power. Um, it is reliable and it is it is firm, and I think that's the most important part. Um, as we see much more uh, wind and solar enter into the generation um, of electricity, that is intermittent power, and you have to have something to fill in the gaps when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. So. You do need to have this this type of uh, dispatchable power. Batteries are up and coming, but many, many years away before they become a big part of the generation capability here. So uh, right now, you just you do need to have coal and you do need to have natural gas in order to, to produce enough electricity when it is needed. Um, and that's the most important part, and that's going to be part of the reliability question that we're going to address later on in this in this webcast. Yeah, and I think that's a nice segue to uh, maybe a little discussion around Europe. Uh, Serena, can you talk about, well, maybe the rest of the world in general, but obviously we've seen a resurgence in coal demand in Europe in particular. Yeah, I mean, the story in in the global markets really is generally quite different to what's happening in the US. Um, we've seen incredibly robust consumption taking place in the European markets, and um, particularly in the aftermath of the, the Russia-Ukraine um, situation. And that's really being driven by some of the gas cutoff um, implications or consequences of the Russian Ukraine war that's taken place right there. Um, we've seen coal um, plants come back, I mean, plants that have been taken offline that have been retired, being pushed back, put back into the system. We've seen plants that are, should be retiring, um, remaining in the system for longer, just because we need to have that security of energy supply that Andy was talking about a bit earlier. Um, the challenge in the European market in particular is that you, you need to replace the gas that's being supplied by Russia um, through this massively piped network. Um, the way to replace that gas is to start importing more LNG. Efforts have definitely been made to make that happen. Um, we've seen a lot more LNG infrastructure coming to the market. Um, that's helping to drive some of those imports and helping to prop up some um, backup res resources in, in the future. What we're seeing right now is that there is still a strong need for European coal demand in, in the market right there. And we're expecting to see continued strength in that consumption taking place this year. Probably not at the same volumes as we've seen last year, but still very, very strong consumption. Just to kind of digress away from the European story for a minute, just to talk a bit more about the global markets. Um, there are other markets in the, in the world that are still growing as well. India is one of the markets that is expected to continue to grow throughout the, the outlook into the longer term. It's a, again, it's a consumption that's being driven primarily by the power sector. It's a growing um, country. It's got you know huge dem demographic growth. It's got manufacturing growth that's taking place there. That's really driving a lot of the consumption there. And we've seen that um, Indian imports, and particularly on the traded markets, um, bounce back over the past couple of years. Um, China, again, is another big consumer producer of coal in the global markets. Um, they have been growing their imports impressively at the start of this year. Um, their imports are actually near record high levels um, since March, May, April, May. Um, you know, the, those um, trends are helping drive really global growth in the traded market. Again, back to those 2019 peaks that we've seen that uh, you were talking about a bit earlier, James. Um, and then in terms of global consumption, when you take into consideration also the volumes of coals that are produced and consumed domestically, you're looking at um, the size of the market that's about 8 billion um, tons in consumption globally. Um, about 
65-70% of that is being driven by the power markets. Maybe about two and a half um, billion tons of that is driven by industry. Um, industry has two sides of the story to that. We've got pretty stable, slightly growing consumption in the thermal coal markets, but the coking coal markets are also very important. And maybe James, you can talk a bit more about that because that is one of your areas of expertise. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great point. Uh, we certainly have a lot of, uh, I think one of the reasons that thermal coal demand globally is declining is that we have had this build of renewables, which can obviously produce electricity uh, without emitting carbon, which is the big challenge with uh, with thermal coal generation. Uh, for steel making, there hasn't been a ready alternative. And so that's kind of viewed as a, what we call a hard to abate industry. Uh, certainly over time, we expect inroads from things like uh, producing uh, steel using uh, hydrogen uh, DRI, uh, coupled with electric arc furnaces. There's a general global trend to building more steel from scrap. So recycling, you know, steel, probably the world's biggest recycled material, uh, but uh, these are slow. Okay, the, the transition away from traditional steel making using iron ore and metallurgical coal um, requires that we have a lot of scrap available. Okay, and there, there are challenges around scrap availability. Uh, there is challenges around producing hydrogen. There are challenges around uh, having the amount of high-grade iron ore that you need for uh, for producing steel using um, using hydrogen. So certainly uh, from a coal perspective, in the long term, demand will decline. Demand for metallurgical coal will decline. But certainly this decade, we have it growing uh, and then really, you know, flattening out in the 2030s. So it's going to be around uh, for some time. Uh, Serena, just to follow up on Europe, I mean, do we think that demand in Europe will stick around or is it going to go away like it, well, like it was before the war broke out? Um, I, I think the trajectory for European demands changed quite drastically since the, the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, the, in what I was saying a bit earlier about the gas markets, that's been an important driver of a lot of the, the coal consumption that we've seen taking place in the market. Um, we've talked about the import, um, the LNG import capacity that's coming into the market. That's definitely making you know very good headway. We've seen a lot of new capacity come online at the start of this year. The challenge in the gas market is that that's getting that additional supply in the market is going to take a lot longer. Uh, we don't expect to see substantial supply volumes in the LNG market until around the middle of this decade. And that's something that will mean that coal will have a, an incredibly important role in, in providing that um, stable energy supply. Um, stability in the energy sector is also incredibly important. Andy's already touched on this. Um, the fact that about 35% of Europe's um, generation can come from sources like wind, solar and hydro is an important factor to kind of keep in mind as well. Um, because we're not at a stage where we have um, backup generation. I mean, gas was intended to be the backup generation for renewables in the European system. Um, we don't have that right now. So coal has a role right there. Um, but the fact that you can't control whether the wind blows, whether the sun shines, whether the rain falls, also kind of jeopardizes that system. Um, the other challenge that Europe has right now is that um, pretty much all of its um, energy sector power generation capacity is, is aging. It's very old. Um, whether you're talking about nuclear, whether you're talking about gas, whether you're talking about coal, a lot of those assets have been in the market for about 30, 40 years. So they're reaching the end of their, their lifespans. They, you know, they're very volatile in terms of their ability to provide security of energy supply. Um, you've got markets like France, for example. I mean, generally speaking, coal is very peripheral 
applicable to a lot of markets in, in Europe, um, with the exception of Germany and Poland, which are heavy consumers. Um, but markets like France, for example, they, you know, less than 1% of um, their power generation actually comes from coal. They plan to be um, free of coal by 2022. They've missed their target. And that's really down to the fact that they've got, you know, predominantly um, unreliable nuclear power system, which accounts for about 70% of their generation. So having that stability in the market is, is something that's really, really important. And coal, again, is one of the solutions that really provides you with that um, stability. So in terms of the European consumption, in, the, um, in terms of coal, demand in its role in, in the European markets, I think there's definitely an ability for coal to kind of have a decent strength in the market for the remainder of this decade. There's definitely an urgency for governments to kind of move back to some of their decarbonisation pol um, policies. Uh, we will start to see that coming into play um, as we move across the decade. But th there's also a big risk that we won't kind of meet a lot of these 2030 decarbonisation targets that Europe is, is um predicting. So, you know, at the moment, we're thinking perhaps you'll see an extra 200, 250 million tons of additional coal consumption taking place in the market relative to where we would have been if the Russia-Ukraine war hadn't happened. But potentially, you'll see a lot of coal consumption take, um, remaining in the market post-2030 when they're intending to be coal-free. Andy, can you talk a little bit about, uh, I'd say the last year, but even just the last seven or eight months, we're, we're in a pretty loose market now, but it's been swinging around a lot. Can you just talk a little about North American coal and where it's sitting today? Yeah, certainly. Um, we've gone through quite a bit of change, especially, as you mentioned, since, since the beginning of this year. Uh, in a brief background of where we, how we got here, uh, in late 2021, and especially through 2022, uh, coal is in pretty short supply, especially in the United States, but elsewhere, uh, you know, sort of leading into the the start of the Russia-Ukraine war. But it was definitely the case here in the United States. Um, and although and demand for electric electric power was growing as the economy was the economy was recovering from COVID. Um, and then we had all the supply chain issues that everybody's quite familiar with, and that includes uh, and in particular labor. Uh, which affected, you know, the coal mines, but it also affected, you know, coal logistics. This would be, uh, in particular, the, the movement of coal from the mines to the power plants and the railroads, et cetera. Um, but it wasn't just coal. Um, natural gas was also in short supply, and you have to look at both coal and natural gas together. Um, and, when you, and when you put it together, of course, you know, when you have shorter supply, you see prices that move higher. And, and last year in the middle of summer, we saw natural gas prices, you know, at some parts of the year were above $8 a million, you know, which was, you know, compared to the year before that was, you know, double if not triple the price um, being paid for that fuel. Um, so you have strong demand. Um, and weak supply, and of course, when you do that, you brought you draw down inventories, and that was also a big part of it. Um, last summer, we had coal that was actually being conserved uh, by some of the power generators uh, because they were concerned about having enough coal on the ground to meet, especially the winter demand. You know, the winter of 2022 and 2023, um, and the concerns. You know, with 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 natural gas. On top of it, the utilities bought very heavily going into this year. So um, the idea was they were they needed not only for you know the fuel for their current generation needs, but they also needed to replenish inventories. 
Now we march into 2023. It starts off with a very unusually warm winter. Um, and you combine that um, with, with the situation on the production side, which is now starting to recover. Uh, you had supply coming in at a fairly good pace, but demand was starting to fall off. Um, and utilities, you know, started and you know, and started the year 2023 at a much more robust situation than people expected. Um, then we continue in, in natural gas, same situation. Um, inventories at the end of the winter were much higher in the U.S. than what was previously expected. So prices started to come down as as you know, the demand in the winter time was weak. Um, natural gas production is at record high levels. So we, we now start this year with natural gas now approaching $2 per million. And again, this, as I said last year, was it partially was close to eight. So oversupply of natural gas, we have oversupply of coal in the domestic market. Inventories are now uh, at, at the very minimum fully replenished. If not, you know, we're starting to get to that point where they're oversupplied. Um, so a much different situation than we had last year. So what we're waiting on at this point from the U.S. coal side is the supply reaction, which we think is coming. So it's a little slow in, in materializing, but it is coming. Um, and a lot rests on what happens this upcoming summer. If it's especially hot, it could, you know, correct things back the other way, you know, to undersupply. Uh, but our view right now is that there's going to be ample supply going through the summer and into next winter, but uh, certainly things could change. So one of the things that we're seeing, though, as a result of this is that we're starting to see exports of U.S. coal starting to increase. And we'll talk a little bit about that shortly. Yeah, why don't we, uh, I think we addressed at the top that, uh, you know, last year, last couple of years, coal producers globally have been making a lot of money. Uh, we've had record high prices, um, prices that have far exceeded, uh, you know, historical prices that were caused by, you know, huge widespread flooding or cyclones, these kinds of things. Uh, so anyone who has had a position in coal, I think has made a lot of money. Uh, at the same time, we have, uh, this is a commodity that has seen seriously underinvestment uh, in terms of future coal needs uh, for 10 or 15 years now. And I, I think this presents a little bit of a challenge where we have long-term demand certainly declining, uh, but some serious questions around the adequacy of supply to meet even that declining demand. Um, how can we overcome this? Uh, I mean, and, and Serena, you mentioned 250 million tonnes of extra demand just in Europe, just this decade, really on the back of the uh, of the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, are we going to have enough coal in the future? I mean, Andy, do you want to start off here? And, and how do you invest in the coal space? If you <laughs> can, if you want to. So... As I mentioned, very interestingly, we've, we started off this year when the coal producer side, and from their perspective, they have very full order books. They, uh, you know, the enthusiasm going into 2023 was pretty strong. So one thing I just, I think it's important to mention off the top is the coal producers, at least from their order book, 
are pretty much sold out for this year at prices that were set when the market was higher. So the critical part here, and I think it's absolutely important, is those are contracts. Those are legal documents and they have real value. So from the coal producer's perspective, um, they're going to want to do everything they can to possibly preserve that. So, I mean, in terms of an investment vehicle, the coal producers, at least on the revenue side, um, you know, have that coal committed at fairly strong values going into 2023 and, and most of that through the, through the balance of the year. Um, so that's, you know, from an, an investment perspective, that is absolutely one part of it. Now, how and when they realize that that value that they have in those contracts, for example, is, is to be determined. So, you know, this, as I mentioned, this summer is going to be important. Um, but I also said, and this is the paradox that we see this year, we're in oversupply. So if we ship all this cold, what does it really mean longer term? Um, so there are some solutions. And I think it's a, it's a grab bag of possibilities in terms of how the coal producers themselves are going to handle it and the utilities who are buying the coal. It's one option if you're a utility that have maybe overpurchased is to resell that coal. One option is to sell it into the export market, which is we are seeing some of that take place now. Um, but another option would be that a utility could monetize that contract they could buy out or buy down some of that commitment um, other cases would be that they would actually you know use it in negotiation for a longer term contract for the, the coal suppliers so in other words they retain that value but then they get it back maybe not this year but over over 2024 2025 and perhaps beyond um, but again it's it's really important that you, you look at these contracts as, you know, these are binding agreements and these things do have a lot of value, uh, not only to the coal producers, but to the investors in those companies themselves. So, um, you know, th this is something that I think, you know, is underappreciated about these, about these commitments, but I think it's an important part if you're looking at it from an investment perspective. Serena, we have strong demand, uh, albeit declining, sort of post-2030 uh, demand globally. Do we have enough supply? I mean, do we need more investment in, in the project pipeline? Is it even possible to bring new projects online? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of scope for, for more supply in the market. I think it, you know, with the prices where they are right now, we've been speaking to producers in the market that are incredibly keen to kind of push out more volumes into the market. There's definitely an incentive to do that. Um, the challenge for the, the coal industry is that it's just been a very challenging or difficult environment to kind of get more capital into the system. Um, you know, part of that was driven from by the fact that, you know, at the beginning of the last decade, we had five years of consecutively falling prices to the point where coal prices are actually below cost for a lot of producers. So those investments weren't taking place back then. And that's kind of stemmed some of the issues that we have right now. Um, Post that, we've had, you know, a drive in uh, an uptick, a massive uptick in these decarbonisation policies. And that's really kind of changed more so the, the profile of the investors that are available to, to people that want to kind of get money to, to grow their coal businesses. So you've kind of transitioned away from these big commercial banks um, that have kind of decided not to invest in new coal projects that are, you know, publicly releasing strategies to get rid of their investment opportunity. Um, investment responsibilities into their existing assets. Um, you've also got um, 
you know, a lot of um, push that on the, the climate side of the industry. You've got so you've got big mining industries that are also kind of moving away from that as well. Um, that's also kind of to appease the, the, the general public. Um, companies like Rio Tinto, Anglo, they've all started divesting their coal businesses. So all of those assets are now starting to fall off their books as well. Um, in terms of the public, you know, you've got a, a big push against uh, also, like, you know, from climate activists, you've got shareholders who are starting to question the actions of big companies. So Glencore, a huge coal company, um, their shareholders are asking them to be a bit more transparent about their strategies to dive, um, to manage their decarbonisation agendas. But there's still money to be had. And I think, you know, particularly when you've got private investors, venture capitalists, um, when you've got these opportunities to make these big profits, they're, they're quite keen to still invest in the industry. And if you don't have to disclose your books to, to the general public, I think you're, you've probably got more ability to invest into these into these um, different assets. I think, you know, we're, we're not completely out of the woods. I think there are companies that are still investing in themselves as well. I think the fact that we've got these bigger bank balances at the end of last year means that companies can start, you know, investing or expanding into their um, existing assets as well. So you can still um, boost production from that side. So I don't think we're completely out of the investment cycle completely, but I think it's just a lot more challenging to get that financial backing. Uh, thanks. One, uh, we have one more question and then we're going to go to audience questions. Just a reminder, uh, you can enter questions and uh, we'll try and get to as many as we can. We have an awful lot of them already, which is great to see. Uh, nice to have an engaged audience. Uh, let's just talk a little bit more about reliability. I think uh, we've had uh, obviously a focus on reliability because of the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, Serena, you mentioned plants coming back online. Uh, Andy, we've had We've had power uh, load shedding events here in the US at times, and I think reliability is a lot more topical today than it was two years ago. Um, does it matter? Are we going to be bringing back coal plants? Are we going to be prolonging coal plant lives? Uh, maybe Andy, do you want to give a few comments? Yeah, I think we're already starting to see that. Um, very big concerns about reliability here in the United States. Um, the power grid in the US is becoming increasingly fragile. I mean, we've retired. Uh, close to a third of the coal generation capacity to date, you know, over the last 10 years and with, with more coming um, based on the schedules that's been announced. Uh, at the same time, we've had very slow permitting um, of transmission, you know, to handle, you know, alternate, you know, including the renewables uh, that would replace some of that power as well as the build out of, of anything that's going to replace that power in terms of natural gas, uh, nuclear there's only there's one nuclear plant that's about to come online um, but that's about it in terms of, of you know new baseload capacity so uh, and and that concern has has uh, has risen to some fairly high levels the uh, North American Electric Reliability Corporation um, otherwise known as NERC which is a, a consortium of um, many of the state's utilities if they issued a report in their summer reliability uh, report saying that roughly two-thirds of North America is at, at electricity supply risk this summer if, you know, in case of, you know, the, the energy shortfalls, if demand spikes, you know, from severe weather or whatever. So, um, and quite a bit of that elevated risk that we're seeing is because of that, uh, the retirement of the coal units, which is, again, is, is a reliable, firm supply of electricity. Um, in another kind of tangential study that was released earlier this week from the environmental, you know, in the Journal of Environmental Science and Technology, um, a rather alarming statistics that is if a blackout occurred in the Phoenix area uh, during a heat wave that 
about half the population you know, in the city, about 800,000 people would need emergency services, which would certainly overwhelm um, the, the city and the state in terms of what can be done. So, I mean, it's, it is becoming a, uh, a much more topical, as you mentioned, um, you know, and it's, this is right now under the worst case scenarios, but it is, seems to be creeping more and more into the discussion ongoing. Um, it's just my hope that, you know, we, you know, we see, start to see policy measures. We're, we're seeing a little bit in some of the EPA announcements lately, that recognizing this. Um, but I, my hope that it is more than just lip service that we start to see actual policy that start to think about, you know, the security of the grid and the reliability of electric power because it's absolutely needed. Mm, a little worrying, particularly with uh, El Nino kicking in and potentially bringing hot weather in uh, a number of northern uh, hemisphere markets. Let's switch over to some client questions now. Uh, like I said, feel free to enter more. Uh, can we start with uh, one quick comment here? Uh, someone talks about uh, renewables and uh, you know whether or not they are truly clean. Certainly, I think a little bit lost in a lot of the discussion around renewables is just how much steel uh, and other metals go into their production. Uh, I think a wind, a five uh, megawatt wind turbine consumes something like a hundred. 120 tons of steel. Uh, the vast bulk of that globally is coming, uh, is produced using iron ore and metallurgical coal. So certainly there's a footprint. Uh, the upside, of course, is that once built, uh, those technologies don't don't emit any any carbon. But certainly there is a carbon footprint to their production. Um, we have a lot of questions, so maybe we just do some real quick answers here. Uh, Andy, is there a future for PRB coal exports? Um, uh, out of the U.S. So the Powder River Basin, which is is uh, the largest coal-producing region in the United States, which is northern Wyoming and southern Montana, um, produces just a little under half the coal it produced in the U.S. and it is all used for power generation. So um, the problem with that coal is that it is landlocked, and being in Wyoming and Montana, it's it's a long way to get to any port. Um, and then compound, compound that is that there's very little port capacity on the west coast um, of North America. So most of that coal, if it's going to be exported, is going to be exported through the through ports just south of Vancouver. Um, and right now we're exporting roughly 10 to 12 million tons of coal. Um, most of that comes from Montana. Some of this coal could make its way to the Gulf of Mexico, um, but it is not really a great export product. Uh, it's a lower heat. You know, the heating value per ton is, is quite low. It's also very high in moisture. Um, but it is really that geographic position of the coal itself, you know, trying to get it to a, you know, a, a viable ocean port, which is the most difficult part. Um, yes, it, it, it could be exported more have, if there's port capacity off the West Coast, but it's just not there. Um, attempts to build something addition, over, additional over the past decade or more have been fraught with, with problems, um, as you might expect on the West Coast of the US. So, uh, no, I don't think that it's gonna be a big player in the export market. Um, it is partially, you know, it is doing what it can, most of it going off the out of ports in Vancouver, as I mentioned, um, but really it's not gonna become a major contributor to the export market. 
Serena, PRB is obviously a low calorific value coal. Uh, we got a question here around just what our expectations are for high CV coal, so high energy content coal uh, versus low energy content, kind of into the longer term. Any? Could you give us some comments around that? Yeah, and in terms of the, the market right now, I think a lot of the growth that we're seeing in terms of the European consumption, um, even consumption in JKT, uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, sorry, they, they, those are markets that are consuming high CV coal. Um, the availability of those coals, however, is quite limited. So I think it's inevitably you're going to see a much smaller market, a much tighter market, and potentially much higher prices in that market. Where we see a lot of supply available in the market really is in Indonesia. Um, these are coals that are feeding quite well into markets like China in particular, but also into India, China, Japan, Korea. Th those markets really do have a potential for, for more growth in, in supply, um, which will mean also as we kind of see CV qualities deteriorate in the market, that there is a potential for markets to, or a necessity really for markets to kind of switch to lower CV coals. Um, most of the new coal plants that come into the system right now do have that flexibility to switch between different calorific value coals. So this kind of helps facilitate that um, behavior. But we're also seeing some adjustments now being made into in places like Japan, which is a bit more rigid in terms of its consumption. We've got companies like Jira um, physically manipulating their boilers so that they can accept greater qualities of coal. So that allows a lot more flexibility in the system to adjust with the, the natural progression of how CB quality coals will be available. A uh, question for both of you, is uh, clean coal, uh, we've had quite a few questions around this, uh, is clean coal a possibility? Can we, could we see carbon capture uh, coupled with coal plants? Um, any, any comments? Maybe Andy first? That's the big hope. Um, right now in the US, there really isn't a, an active carbon capture facility, but certainly, you know, if you look at the EPA regulation that came out in the middle of May, um, they're basing a lot of this on the ability to, to that the technology does evolve. Um, right now in North Dakota, uh, at the Great Rivers plant, which is now owned and operated by Rainbow Energy, um, there is plans to you know, move forward with a carbon capture program. And elsewhere in the States, there's quite a few plans that are looking at, you know, pilot projects. Um, but you know, it's the issue with my mind is, is getting this done before the deadlines that are required under this new carbon emissions regulation proposal that was announced earlier. Um, it's a tall order to get this in place, um, you know, in the mid 2030s, uh, given the amount of money and given the amount of construction and pipelines and everything else that's going to be needed to get this done. Um, but certainly, it is. It, there is some some projects that are moving forward, but uh, you know nothing on the commercial side, you know, scale yet. I mean, we see we do see one um, up in Canada, but it's only capturing a portion of the of the carbon dioxide that's coming off the off the generation side. But uh, it's still in its very beginning stages, and a lot has to be done. And Serena, globally, is there more hope for carbon capture? Um, I, I think it's a very similar situation, really. I think countries generally are realising that you need to kind of keep coal in the system for longer. It's becoming increasingly difficult um, to divest away from that. And certainly in markets which are a lot more coal heavy in their use, whether it's um, you know, China, India, Japan, Korea, 
Um, I mean, Japan and Korea have been at the forefront of a lot of the technological developments that we've seen in the market. And already in their 2015 net zero plans, they've already incorporated some element of carbon abatement, whether it's CCS or in some other technology um, that's, that's developed along that line. Um, what we saw recently happen um, a couple of weeks ago in the G7 summit as well, that um, governments and countries are realizing that it is becoming more difficult to move away from coal, um, coal use in general. So there, there is this massive push to, to kind of allow coal to remain in the system for longer. So I think there will be, again, a big push to, to um, drive forward that some of those carbon abatement technologies. And you've also got interim solutions as well with um, ammonia co-firing being massively um, developed in, in Japan. They've, I think they've released, just um, sorry, launched one of their pilot um, programs right now. And, you know, we think that there's a scope for alternative solutions to be available. And I think people will try to proactively try and um, make that happen. Yeah, we actually have a question here from uh, Yuji around, uh, could we see expansion of that coal ammonia co-firing uh, uh, to other parts of the world, perhaps the UK or, or EU countries? And, uh, you know, I think that's certainly... Uh, something that a lot of these uh, utilities are looking at as a way to get their carbon footprint down. I don't know how widespread it will become, but, but certainly uh, directionally positive, I think. Uh, a, a, quite a few more questions here. Um, uh, I, and I'll, I'll skip over little questions that are just sort of looking at stats or something technical. Um, we can address you guys offline. Um, I guess a, a f one follow-up to that, I, I know looking at China, and China has its 2060 uh, carbon neutrality target, uh, and yeah, in our view, they still need a, a very large amount of coal-fired generation, probably about 30% of their grid uh, in 2060 to still have reliability. So they would need some sort of a, an abatement technology like carbon capture. But a question from Neil here. Are environmental targets for reducing coal's usage uh, realistic? Uh, Andy, do you want to have a shot there? <laughs> so I have, uh, just looking at um, some of the some of the proposed plans and rulemaking coming out of EPA in the last six months. Um, I mean, it's it's been a uh, an avalanche, and certainly you know looking at what's going on in, in terms of the regulation side uh trying to get this done in the time frame that's at least on the regulator side it's it's going to be a very tall order and i think i've hinted at that before um but i think that it's it's going to be increasingly difficult um to meet some of these targets at this point um and i in the expense um and not only that, the, the ability to replace coal at this point is very, very difficult. Uh, you know, again, looking at the time frame that everybody's sort of looking at. So uh, I'm not really not seeing it at this point. Uh, similarly, uh, <clears throat> question from Roberto here, who points out Australia is recently uh, uh, you know, talking about regulations for regarding emissions of coal producers, which uh, is quite rare around the world. Um, Will we see other countries follow suit? I mean, I, look, I think the focus is increasingly going to switch to that. I think the original target in carbon has been the electric power sector because they're big entities uh, and, and things like refineries and so forth because they're big entities. Uh, the automotive sector, because you, know, you could manage uh, automotive emissions 
at the producer level, but uh, things like the steel sector where it's physically difficult to abate or things like mines and gas producers, I think that's always a challenge, but I think absolutely we will see uh, more of that type of uh, producer side regulation going forward. Uh, very quickly here, a question I'll take from James uh, around met coal uh, and emissions and whether or not there's the same kind of focus on metallurgical coal as there has been on thermal coal. I, I think for quite a while, uh, for reasons I don't fully understand, I think met coal got a bit of a pass. Uh, I think, you know, I think there was a misconception that, that steelmaking didn't emit carbon. If people are aware of carbon steel, but of course, steel making is a big carbon emitter. Certainly, I think it's been easier to finance. That's part of the question. Uh, Met coal projects, and in general, those have been more profitable. Uh, but certainly, that financing tightening that we've seen in thermal coal for years has certainly well and truly hit Met coal not quite as hard. Uh, listen, I think we're 20 to the hour. Uh, I think we need to wrap. Um, been a great discussion. Uh, thank you very much, Andy. Thank you very much, uh, Serena. Thank you, audience, uh, for tuning in. Uh, now, Monday's a holiday here in the United States, so next Barron's Live is going to be on Tuesday. Uh, uh, that will be uh, Barron's managing editor, Darren Fonda, and uh, Joseph Kalish, uh, who's the chief global macro strategist at Ned Davis Research. Uh, they're going to be talking about how bank failures and a real estate crunch could pose problems for the economy uh, and what's ahead. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, everyone be well and uh, have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.